in regard to the wisdom that she returned with, uh, she spoke with a monk, a Buddhist monk in robes. That's who welcomed her. And it was um, kind of typical in that it was a lush green jungle setting. She said that she felt this interconnectedness with uh, the grass, the fish in the koi pond, this beautiful scenery, uh, and a white veil behind her that she knew that if she crossed that veil, she'd not be able to come back. She described it as a dense fog, uh, semi-opaque, or, or a mist, or a mist. Um, but she said that she sat with the monk for what seemed like days and discussed things, and this monk shared knowledge with her. And she said it was as if every question I ever had was answered with kindness and in a way that I, that I could under, that she could understand. Uh, and she knew whenever she made the decision that she would go back, she returned voluntarily. She didn't want to, but she did. Um, and she knew that she would lose a lot of that knowledge. Right now on Higher Journeys with Alexis Brooks. Well, hello there, everyone. Welcome to Higher Journeys. I am your host, Alexis Brooks. And of course, if it's your first time here, I welcome you. Well, if you have been uh, tuning into Higher Journeys for the last, oh, umpteen years at this point, one thing that we have not talked about readily, I would say, is a phenomenon called the near-death experience or NDE. I don't know why that is. I've, I, we've touched on it, I think, in uh, previous shows. We've, uh, of course, had a couple of individuals on that research in that field, but haven't really di- dived in, dove in, dived in, <laughs> until now, until now. And today, I'm so delighted to bring back a guest who also has not uh, been entrenched in this topic until now, that is, and his name is Terry Lovelace, and he is back for the umpteenth time. Terry, <laughs> welcome to the show again. Thank you, Alexis. It's great to be here. Always a pleasure to have you. And I've got a, you know, full transparency, full disclosure, you guys, we had a hell of a time getting up and running today. So uh, we're we're starting out probably a little bit off kilter, but I promise you we'll bring it in and get our focus back because we have some great stuff to talk about. So listen, Terry, you, you're just the the right and fool, man. And I'm being somewhat facetious, but Terry is a prolific writer. He's now Uh, about to publish his third book on near-death experiences. And it's not just on a broad, the broad phenomenon of NDEs, but an individual that we're going to get into how he uh, uh, stumbled upon her information and and got uh, a real bird's eye view as to this phenomenon. But we will talk, uh, you know, a bit more about the, some of the nuances associated with near-death experiences. It's a fascinating phenomenon, all of the things that we cover here on Higher Journeys that have to do with broadly the metaphysical, uh, the uh, anomalous and uh, curious are all uh, worth exploring. So today, this is exactly what we're going to do. The name of the forthcoming book, Terry, is Free Fall, an American Near-Death Experience. I have to start out with, where did you come up with that subtitle? The subtitle, An American Near-Death Experience. You know, let me start with the title and then I'll jump down to the subtitle. You know, I call the book Free Fall, kind of in large, large font, 
Uh, and the reason I call it that is um, the main protagonist in this story. This is kind of a blend of two stories, but I'll explain that later. She was uh, 14 years of age and she was walking by by the edge of a community swimming pool and this uh, high school nemesis of hers, they had a beef going back to like first grade or something. This girl ran up to her and shoved her, hit her on her left shoulder. She fell to her right uh, and into the deep end of the pool. She hadn't been in the pool yet that day. The water was cool and she reflects, inhale, and uh, things just deteriorated for her uh, from there. But curiously, the song she was listening to was Tom Petty's Free Fallen. And uh, she's listening to that music as she's flying through the air about to hit the water. And it just made an impression on me. I thought, oh, what a perfect title. Yeah. And I call it an American near-death experience because uh, I, was, I was contacted by four people and they were, they were all American, um, but they were all a little bit different ethic, ethnically, ancestrally. They were all had a little bit different roots. And um, Susie Kwan, who I is the protagonist in the book, the girl who drowned in a swimming pool, is uh, was born in, in the United States, but her parents were both uh, immigrants from China through, they went from China and then uh, kind of uh, escaped communist China to Thailand, pardon me, Thailand, Taiwan, uh, where they had relatives established and they spent two years in, in Taiwan before they were able to make the jump here. Uh, they were both... Uh, medical doctors and uh, that, that helped them get in. And, uh, you know, Susie is uh, of Asian descent. Uh, but one of the things she expressed to me was, you know, my ancestry, my culture, uh, my familial connections are Asian, but I want you to make it clear that I'm an American. Hmm. Uh, that was important to her. And, um, you know, there was some, during, during the uh, COVID lockdown, there were a couple of isolated incidents, but they, they were pretty, uh, pretty ugly, pretty dramatic that happened in San Francisco, if I recall, uh, involving crimes against Asians. Mm -hmm. And this was about the time that the, um, the COVID virus was called the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus or mm -hmm. the virus somehow became tied to erroneously tied to uh, a group of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the, 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 the virus really doesn't care about your ethnicity uh, and that should never happen. That should never be an right. identity. So she was obviously very uh, sensitive at the time as you were taking in this information, this was right. At, at least at the beginning or beginning stages of the pandemic, correct? Correct. Okay. So that's understandable. Okay. Well, that that's a, it's relevant to the conversation that we're going to get to, Terry, because we're talking about a phenomenon that I don't think knows any uh, uh, gender, color, religion, or anything. And yet for her, 
I think it is relevant because of the nature of how she ended up, we're going to kind of fast forward to the experience that precipitated the NDE being pushed in a community pool while she was with her best friend, also, uh, I believe, Asian American. They were 14-ish years old. And she was pushed in the pool by a bully who had been taunting both of these girls based on their ethnicity. So I would, I'm, I'm sort of jumping to conclusions here, but I, I would imagine that she, that particularly because she died temporarily, that was a very, very heavy experience for her. And so I would imagine that the sensitivity of wanting to be clear, don't look at me as one of those, you know, uh, different types of people, different type of, uh, of race. I am an American so I'm, again, this is just an assumption, but I can see where that sensitivity would come in. So um, very, very, um, you know, this is something that we all have to face. This We could go into more of a topical issue of race and gender in the society right now and the divisiveness that continues to perpetuate based on those things. And they do kind of fold into this conversation, these conversations having to do with otherworldly experiences. I'm going to be working on uh, looking into that a bit more. But for now, I want to get into, I want to ask you just briefly, you know, folks that know your work, your incredible work with two books on your experience at Devil's Den, know you as an experiencer, a contactee, and you've been very, very transparent about your own experiences and the tumult that went with that. How did you, or why did you feel the need to dive in to this uh, different and though I would argue connected phenomenon of near-death research. You know, I, uh, I'm i an experiencer, but and I'd heard of the near-death experience uh, as a phenomenon, but I don't know much. I've never studied it. I've never really had an interest in it. And from 2019 through 20, 2019, 2020, I had uh, four people contact me out of the 4,000 that have contacted me to date. Um, I, I leave an email in the epilogue of every book that I write. Uh, and I, it's Terry Lovelace at yahoo.com. And I encourage anybody, if you've had an experience that you want to share, um, I, I'd love to hear it. And uh, I've had people write to me who had encounters with UFOs, with aliens, with Bigfoot, with ghosts, with shadow figures. All, all, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and I had precisely four people um, contact me with near-death experiences they wanted to share. And uh, one of the first things that they asked was, do you see the connection between your encounter and the near-death experience? And I have to admit, at first, I didn't. I, I really couldn't make that connection um, because I... I was thinking in terms of supernatural versus paranormal. Um, and there's not really a distinction there. Uh, so yeah. the, the, the issue is consciousness. It, it, it dawned on me like out of the blue. This is, this is all related to consciousness. Uh, everyone's interconnectedness with one another. Uh, our connectedness with the universe as a, as a, some would say a living thing. I tend to view it that way now. Um, but talking to these these people really, really impressed me. Uh, 
you know, their candor, their credibility, uh, and interesting, interesting demographics. I, I, I love demographics. I'm a data kind of guy. And uh, uh, four people contact me. Three of them are medical doctors. Mm. What are the odds of that? Right. But, you know, I guess it kind of makes sense because medical doctors see more death and dying right. than we do. But these three medical doctors actually were the experiencers, yes? They're the ones that had the NDE. They are. That's They're not reporting third person. They're reporting what happened to them personally. Right. I want to get into, once we get into the chronology of Susie's story and, and the NDE, the physician that cared for her after she was uh, resuscitated and taken off of a vent. Um, we'll get into that in a minute. But um, one thing about Susie, th- by the way, guys, this is a book that I, I was, when I was talking to Terry yesterday, I'm like, when is this thing coming out? I, I was able to get the galley or get the uh, close to final version because I know people are going to love this. I, I said to Terry, you know, I could have spent all day yesterday reading this book, but we had to prep and get ready for today. So I'm definitely going to go back to it. it. It reads very, very well. This is a true story. Susie's story is very fascinating uh, and yet not unlike many I've heard in terms of children and their own psi or psychic experiences. She's no exception. At four years old, she recalls, as early as four years old, having uh, many visits by spirit beings, one being which she would eventually find out to be her grandmother, long deceased, who she had never even met. And it was her grandmother, Let's we're going back now to when she was probably about six years old, Correct. who came to her at her bedside one night and said, Susie, get ready for a typhoon. Talk about what happened there and how her dad was involved, if you would. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting story. This She had this uh, vision of her grandmother, which she'd seen before, usually limited to just seeing one another, acknowledging one another, and there being an exchange of unspoken love between the two of them. Um, and this night in particular, her grandmother appeared to her and told her, you know, be, be ready, Susie, a typhoon is coming. And she woke up the next day and, you know, she's six years old. She's thinking, I don't think there are any typhoons in Kansas. You know, she had to ask her mother to make sure. Um, and she learned about tornadoes, but, you know, no typhoons. And, of course, grandma was speaking metaphorically. Um, shortly after that, her father was uh, on his way home, two miles from home, stopped in an ATM. Uh, and this was 1980. One, 81 cusp of 82. He stops at an ATM. ATMs are relatively new. The one at this bank had just been installed. Um, and he, nine o'clock at night, he is making a withdrawal. And the withdrawal was maxed out at $200. That's all you could take at the time. And um, a man with a typical black hoodie walks up behind him and sticks a revolver to the back of his neck and said, give me your money and your wallet. And I think that, um, I think that Dr. Kwan, I think that her dad really believed he could comply with this and go home that night. And that sadly didn't happen. He handed his wallet over his shoulder, which the man took. He took off his watch and handed it back over his shoulder. And of course he gave him the stack of bills with the 
uh, ATM receipt on top, which comes into play some years down the road uh, with a fingerprint. But as soon as he took um, the cash with the, the receipt, he, uh, he pulled the trigger and uh, killed him. So, um, you know, Susie, remember, you know, you remember those kind of events vividly. Of course. And she was home with her mother and the police knock on the door, you know, and, and give her the news. And they have, um, she talks about how that changed her life and how, uh, you know, the, uh, they, they were practicing or practicing, uh, they were Buddhist and they supported the Buddhist in the local uh, temple monastery the monks from the temple were there to support her and her family. And, um, you know, we all have a, a point in our life where we realize what death is. And six years old is kind of young. But, you know, we all have grandparents that die, parents that die. So we all go through that experience. Um, but she did it just a little earlier than uh, probably needed to be. Yeah, but uh, he played a role in her near-death experience, really? and while she's never spoken to him or he's never spoken to her, she's had events in her life where um, she tried to act with kindness and do something good, and she would see her father's face in her dream. Hmm. She could never talk to him or speak to him, but he would smile at her. Um, they you know, this is another commonality between alien abduction, UFO phenomenon, Bigfoot, not everybody sees the same thing. And I don't think that takes away one ounce of credibility. It seems like these experiences are tailor-made for every person. Absolutely. Everyone's got a special. Uh, and I think that that's, that's just so, so wonderful. There's definitely a subjective nature to these um out of this world, forgive the cliche experiences, including dreams. You know, I, I, I always marvel at how whatever is constructing a certain dream scenario knows us so well that it can pull the most seemingly disparate, nuanced, you know, little teeny details just to get your, you, Terry, your, you, your attention. How is that? It's so fascinating. I want to talk about Susie and at some point, in her journey, I believe it was after the NDE, and we're going to get into that next, chrono chronologically, what happened. She was there at the site where her father was killed and was able to describe exactly what happened. Do you recall in the in the chronology where she talks about that? Was this after her NDE experience? Because I, you do say that after the NDE, her psychic proclivity went up, you know, huge she became even more sensitive so is this something that happened after the nde account or experience this all happened before the nde account um well i know her father was shot when she was six but at some point she felt herself to be at that atm oh reliving yes. it yes that's after when she has what she refers to as enhanced psychic ability ah, okay and uh, that dream was real important to her and she recalls that in the dream, it was black and white, of course, and uh, it, you know, was dark. And 
There were the flashing lights, although I don't know if they were flashing at nine o'clock at night. That doesn't make sense. A busy street. And uh, she recalls a piece of newspaper blowing across the road, which I immediately thought of. There's a Twilight Zone episode where that plays a big role in setting this spooky scene, this newspaper blown across the road. And that was part of her memory. And she was in the shrubbery. And she watched this man walk up, pull out a silver pistol, put it to the back of her father's head. Um, and she didn't hear the conversation as much. You know, she saw her father try to comply with, uh, with the robber. And then she saw the yellow flash. And then that's when she heard this deafening boom in her dream hmm. that woke her up. And... Uh, so she relived it through um, through her eyes, but she believes that what she saw was uh, a genuine how it went reliving of what of what actually happened to her dad. Right, that's amazing, amazing, and yet not surprising. I want to read a quote from from uh, your book in which Susie describes what it was like to be in her near death state. I'm going to kind of jump to that, and then I want to go back to. Uh, more of what she describes. She says, quote, I suddenly entered the light. I wasn't Susie anymore. Sure, she was a part of me, but not the true me, not my essence. This was the real me. I felt more alive than ever before. I felt my consciousness expand and I experienced an awareness that was unavailable to me in the constraints of a human body. I had access to knowledge and wisdom I knew, but had never been taught it was now simply remembered. I think that's so powerful. The remembering of uh, outside of the constraints of being in a human body, remembering, com coming back perhaps to the Akashic. What were your thoughts about that, that um, how she expressed that? If you're enjoying this episode, along with all of the subjects that we cover here on Higher Journeys, then I invite you to join our members only community on Patreon, where we go even deeper into the conversations with the guests that you know and love. Not only does your membership ensure that we can keep this work going and growing, but you'll also get immediate access to our exclusive after shows. Get up close and personal with the guests of the show, along with many other member perks. So click on the link below to join now or visit higherjourneys.com where you'll find the Patreon link. We'll see you on the journey. Thanks. Uh, I was astounded. I was stunned uh, because there's a, there's, a, there's a little more to that. Um, you know, when, when people pass over, they tend to encounter a deceased relative uh, if their, their belief is Christian, they may encounter Jesus, uh, the Virgin Mary, an apostle, a saint, um, a, a, just a holy man of some description. Uh, and if, if atheists and agnostics uh, encounter, you know, sometimes it can be a tribunal. Sometimes it can be just like a spirit guide. Uh, sometimes it can be just the universe. Uh so the, the, the thing is, is the, the, the event is tailor-made for people. Mm -hmm. And she said that it wasn't a linear experience. It was as if everything had happened at once in regard to the wisdom that she returned with. Uh, she spoke with a monk, a Buddhist monk in robes. That's who welcomed her. And it was... Um, kind of typical in that it was a lush green jungle setting 
she said that she felt this interconnectedness with uh, the, the grass, the fish in the koi pond, this beautiful scenery, uh, and a white veil behind her that she knew that if she crossed that veil, she'd not be able to come back. She described it as a dense fog, uh, semi-opaque, or, or a mist, or a mist. Um, but she said that she sat with the monk for what seemed like days and discussed things, and this monk shared knowledge with her. And she said it was as if every question I ever had was answered with kindness and in a way that I, that I could understand, that she could understand. Uh, and she knew whenever she made the decision that she would go back, she returned voluntarily. She didn't want to, but she did. Um, and she knew that she would lose a lot of that knowledge. And that kind of frustrates her because she says, I know some really cool stuff. I just can't access it. Mm -hmm. I want to interject something there. That's in getting back, <clears throat> Terry, to the the contact phenomenon and encounters with non-human intelligence, in which often, if not most times, it's a telepathic exchange of information from the non-human entity to the human. Um, there is a um, it's not a screen memory, but a a, a, a gap in which you can't remember for some reason all of the details and yet you know it's there. So that would be, <clears throat> excuse me, another correlation I could make with these, if you wanna put them in a, what Ray Hernandez from Free Calls contact modalities of which NDEs are a part, the common themes are interacting with something outside of our time space um, construct interfacing with something or someone outside of that construct, getting a download, if you will, of information. And then invariably, when you come fully back into the 3D, most if not all of it's forgotten. Why do you think that is? You know, I, I, I think it's because if she came back with all that knowledge, um, it would ruin the lessons we're supposed to learn from experience. I think it would just kind of, uh, you know, the object of the exercise is to live a good life, to learn, uh, to understand, and through trial and error, a lot of times learn how to live an ethical, uh, proper, good life. Uh, and understand that at, at the, this is all really about, uh, about love. It really is about how we treat one another. Mm -hmm. And um, she didn't have a life review. Um, the other lady did. And, uh, but I think that we, we, we can't remember that stuff because it's too profound. It's, it's too much for us to bring back and share. It's uh, the saying is above my pay grade. And I think that's where it lies. Mm -hmm. And yet, for some reason, it's important that the information is received at some level of our consciousness. We're speculating, obviously, as to why that is, but knowing that it is there. Remember what she said in this quote, I had access to knowledge and wisdom I knew but had never been taught. It was now 
simply remembered. Perhaps, Terry, part of that experience uh, of being here is to figure out how to trigger, to resurrect, to remember the knowledge that's been given to you outside of this framework, tapping into that wisdom, tapping into the Akashic, um, just speculation, you know. Well, I, I think that goes beyond speculation. I mean, I she emphasized to me the importance of meditation. And in meditation, she actually made contact with, with the monk um, more than once. Uh, and she told me that um, when she meditates, <clears throat> I try to meditate. I don't know what I'm doing, but I try. And But she says when she meditates, um, she knows that when she's kind of there in the zone, you know, where, where, where it's supposed to be. And um, that's when she has the most contact. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. And she says, you know, when we dream in this dream state, we're in a similar state uh, to what we are in deep meditation. And because our mind isn't cluttered with nonstop verbiage and, and thoughts um, in our sleep, we can be contacted much more easily. No question. I think and that's true. Yeah. I never, I never realized that. Well, there's been a lot of research done on that. You know, the, um, oh gosh, I don't want to give it the wrong term. Uh, there's been some great work done on dream, uh, you know, the dreamscape as compared to the out-of-body state, near-death state, and even contact encounters. In fact, there are many who feel that their uh, contact encounters are, are, during the sleep state. And there's a very um, sort of blurry line. There's no real line of demarcation between what might be a dream and an actual encounter. Are we actually uh, traveling when we're in the dreamscape? So there's there's definitely a lot of, you know, I say reality is not black and white, but infinite shades of gray. And this is one of those areas that we, I think, frankly, occupy a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. I don't know that we need to have a near-death experience in order to uh, to uh, take these sojourns, if you will. So, She told um, me that in those exact words, she said. Because I told her, we're in a conversation on the phone, but we, I told her, I said, you know, I'm a bit envious. And she's like, don't be, because, you know, you're going to have your turn. Uh, hmm. but, uh, how, how has this left her? Now, again, we have we still have yet to go into what happened. You did touch on it. I think maybe let's go back. We're kind of bouncing all over the place, guys. It's kind of, kind of wonky energy today. We're, I hope, <laughs> but we're getting it out. We're getting it out. And I want to do this book justice because it is that good. Let's take a step back, Terry. I want to go back to what happened to her as much as you can recount. She was six, uh, I'm sorry, 14 years old. She had been, um, you know, bullied on a daily basis from this troubled uh, adolescent, I believe her name is Melinda. Correct. Um, taunting her about her ethnicity and her friend. Yes. Her mother would constantly say, Susie, don't retaliate. It's, it's not worth it. Take the high ground. And she did until this day. And it was on that day at the community pool where, you know, Melinda or Melissa, whatever her name is, and her boyfriend started making fun of the two young Asian women, Asian American young ladies. And this time she decided to 
retaliate and call her a name, called her a name, called her a fat cow or something like that. And Melinda wasn't having that. And that's when she whacked her and she fell into the pool and lost consciousness for 32 minutes. I want you to take it from there to the best of your recollection and tell us what happened. Yeah. What happened was she and her friend entered the, entered the area, the pool area. And and it was, uh, her parents were doctors. They had a a nice home in an upscale community and the community had uh, a public, a public pool for the residents of the little community. Even though Melinda wasn't a member of that community, one of her friends was, so that's how she got access to the pool. Uh, And what's interesting is, like you say, when she walked in, she got taunted uh, racially by by Melinda and her friends again. And here's where Susie's so conflicted, and I think still conflicted to this day. You know, she recalls being told over and over again, don't retaliate, take the high ground. Retaliation will only re- lead to escalation. And uh, she made an interesting comment. She said that um, after she made the comment, after she made the rude comment, I think the rude comment was she said to her friend, Mary, I didn't know uh, fat cows could talk. Did you, Mary? And of course, her friend Mary went, moo, and that didn't help. Uh, but she body shamed this girl. And, um, you know, after, you know, eight years of being taunted and tormented by this girl, it's the first time she ever spoke back. And um, on one hand, she was kind of like, I feel good about this. I stood up for myself. I stood up for my friend. Um, But she still, on the other hand, said, you know, maybe I should have taken the high ground. But then again, she's conflicted because she had, had she taken the high ground, and just walked away, uh, she wouldn't have had this near-death experience, which is something she really treasures and, mm-hmm. and feels um, not elitist, but privileged to have had this experience. Uh, so she wouldn't trade it. I mean, the way things turned out, she said, you know, I, I wouldn't trade the outcome for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah. I want to talk about the fact she's now what, 40, mid 40s, 48, 48 years old. Okay. Practicing physician, correct? Correct. Pediatrician. Interesting. Let's talk about the skepticism and maybe the lack thereof of the NDE phenomenon within the medical profession. Um, I want to bring up first the physician that took care of this young woman after she was declared, well, certainly wasn't having any, was she having any brain activity to, was she declared dead? How, how did this work? Let's, let's finish that up. And then I want to bring in this physician. Okay. Yeah. This was all on an emergency basis. So they didn't have time to hook her up to an electroencephalograph. Um, Here's how it played out. She hit the water. She had that automatic response of inhaling from, from the shock of the cold water takes me back to the movie Titanic. Mm-hmm. And uh, she uh, she panicked. She said she felt more fear and more panic than she'd ever felt in her life. And she heard a female voice that she couldn't identify, thinks it might have been her grandmother, but it was a female voice, clearly spoke to her in her head. Um, 
interestingly, she said it was an audible voice, but not through my ears. Uh, but she heard this voice say to her, just let go, Susie. And she did. And the second she did, all the pain, all the panic, all of the anguish, all of that vanished. And she was um, in a drown, I mean, drowning. She remembers opening her eyes and seeing bubbles go up. But again, she was calm. And then suddenly she recalls being above the pool. She said about 20 feet above the pool. And what happened to her was one of the, one of the uh, people at the pool that day happened to be a heart surgeon. Hmm. And he was there with his kids. Uh, and he knew Susie. He knew the family. Um, and the lifeguard was observant because the pool was crowded. And I, I never realized this till I researched it, but lots of people drown two feet away from a friend in a crowded pool with all kinds of people all around. And uh, that can happen. And, and I, I never realized that. Hmm. There's also such a thing as dry drowning where water hits your trachea and there's a, some type of uh, response and your trachea slams shut. I mean, like a car door which water can't get in, but neither can oxygen. Right, right. So, but, uh, but Susie didn't experience that. She actually inhaled the water, felt the heaviness in her lungs. So the observant lifeguard jumps in, grabs her, pulls her out, and she's on the uh, cement by the edge of the pool. And of course, the surgeon, cardiac surgeon is right there. And um, the lifeguard was, was uh, hip to CPR and they started giving her uh, CPR immediately. The uh, lifeguard did the uh, mouth resuscitation and the uh, uh, heart surgeon did her uh, chest compression. And uh, I didn't know this, but she was told that uh, the lifeguard turned her head to the side and she actually spewed water out of her mouth like a fountain. Hmm. Um, wow. Which okay. kind of amazed me. So they rushed her to the emergency room was she breathing at that point where, where was she in in that uh what condition was she in in route to the she, hospital she was not breathing on her own she had no heartbeat she had no heartbeat from the time they pulled her to the pool until the time she was finally resuscitated in the er but what's interesting is she was watching her own resuscitation from 20 foot above and she could repeat to her friend mary the words that she said because, you know, there's a crowd of people gathered around, as there always is. And her friend Mary reached out and grabbed her hand and said, don't you die on me, Susie Kwan. Hmm. And she came back and, and her friend verified, yeah, that's, that's what I said. And what's, what's really interesting is, I mean, we talk about, this is where I talk about materialist, you know, Consciousness being local or non-local. Um, well, I'll, I'll get into that later. Let me answer your question. And that is that they loaded her onto a, a litter or, or a, a gurney, put her in the ambulance, shut the door, and the uh, they continue with CPR. She's aware that that's going on, but she's also even more aware that she's above this ambulance that takes her to the emergency room. And she's looking down at it. And she sees this ambulance that's all in white paint, 
with some red crosses on the side, but above in an area that she'd have no access. There's no way she'd see that. It was eight eight feet, you know, on top of the ambulance, they had paid an an Arabic numeral seven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she arrived in unit seven. And um, I I drove an ambulance for a while when I was uh, in the military. And uh, I, I know that they do that so that helicopters can identify which vehicle is about to arrive at the hospital, who's in which, which vehicle, it, it, it makes sense. So when she got to the ER, she was uh, intubated uh, and ventilated. So, so she was getting some oxygen, you know, better oxygen than she was getting from the mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And um, they, they did the um, uh, defibrillator to try to start her heart. And it took three attempts, and on the third attempt, they got a heartbeat, and uh, and she recovered. Uh, and this totaled thirty two minutes. Is that correct? This was after thirty two minutes. Yes. Okay. So she was never uh, declared clinically dead, but the but she was but she was not fully alive. Let's just say I don't know what the technical term would be for thirty two minutes. It took thirty two minutes to bring her back. In other words, there was this sort of it, it, you know, I had this debate with her about what's the criteria for clinical death. Hmm. And uh, I have a very good friend here in Dallas who's a practicing psychiatrist, and he's an MD, and uh, we talk about medical stuff all the time. And uh, I told him, I asked him, I said, when when is someone clinically dead? By the way, he is the biggest skeptic. Uh, <laughs> He, 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 he absolutely, without a doubt, believes in non-human entities, uh, in the, in the uh, presence of E.T., and, and, but this stuff is he just can't accept because he really? Yeah, and that amazes me because he's an open-minded man who I, I would think would pay attention to the, uh, or at least give some consideration to the evidence because, mm-hmm. you know, there's an amazing amount of evidence. Collected. Of course there is. Of course. Well, you cite uh, some of that evidence, not just evidence, but just documentation. One of the first accounts, uh, written accounts of a near-death experience happened in the, um, was it the 1700s, I believe? Yes. Yeah. By a Paris physician. Yes. Who declared his patient dead because they had no heartbeat, no respiration, Mm -hmm. and their pupils didn't respond to light. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, so he declared the command that you know the man when he came back when he revived, he said, and maybe it's just kind of muddled because of the uh, translation issues, but he said, "I just saw the purest whitest light." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Yeah, so many correlations. Well, so we've come kind of full circle. Now you you kind of have a sense for the chronology, what ha- how it happened the state, the out-of-body state, and of course, some of the, the interactions that she had, including her father while she was in this uh, out-of-body, near-death state. Here's what's interesting to me, particularly because she's now a practicing physician. The physician that cared for her during this experience seemed extraordinarily inquisitive, very atypical for a physician, and had a sense, Terry, did he not, that Susie had had an experience while she was out for 32 minutes. It was almost like he was asking a leading question, but not in a, not in a um, in sort of interrogative way, but he had a sense something had happened to her and she seemed a bit, uh, uh, you know, hesitant to 
uh, talk about it because she didn't know where he was coming from. But the bottom line is she told him, she ended up admitting, yes, I believe something happened to me. And I actually believe that I was above that ambulance because I saw the Roman numeral seven in Arabic on top of it. Now he knew nothing about it, but he ended up checking into it. And lo and behold, he uh, confirmed that indeed this particular ambulance in which he was transported did have that number. So what does he do? And this is fascinating to me because it's so atypical for uh, someone practicing allopathic medicine. He handed her a book, the book by Dr. Raymond Moody, Life After Life, a tattered copy at that, because he had seen this before. That is fascinating to me. Uh, speaking of your your physician friend who's very skeptical about this particular phenomenon, she is now a physician. How do you think that exchange, as long ago as it was, may have affected how she practices medicine? Oh, I think she's very, very empathetic uh, to the dead and dying, that people that are in the process of death and dying. In 1978, I read the book by uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Mm. Uh, just because it happened to be lying around, I picked up a copy. I thought, well, this is kind of cool. Um, uh, on death and dying. On death and dying. And, uh, but I had never read anything by Raymond Moody or about the near-death experience. Uh, but Dr. Momond... Uh, I refer to him as, walked into her room, uh, and she was a little sicker than I, than I really thought it was worthwhile to go into. She had pneumonia. She had um, some bad burns to her back from being on the hot concrete during this resuscitation. Um, not bad burns, but, you know, uncomfortable burns. Uh, and, and some broken ribs and broken sternum from the chest compressions. So um, doctor walks into her room and says, uh, how you doing, Susie? Feeling better? Oh, yes, feeling better. He, he visited her, of course, every day, which he had a duty to do. And um, he comes in and he says, well, it's your last day. We're going to get you out of here, cut you loose tomorrow. And he says, I'm so glad that you're feeling better. And they'd already had the conversation about the ambulance because he. this is when she posed the question, he didn't know the answer. He had to check. She was on the fifth floor. And one of the first things he did was walk to the window and glance out the window. And I think, and Susie thinks what he was doing was making sure that the ambulances weren't parked right outside. So you could see that they had numbers painted on them. Uh, but they weren't. They were garaged and housed on the other side of the hospital. So um, it was absolutely a leading question. And uh, I heard Dr. Bruce Grayson in a talk uh, about the study that he did. Uh, and I think that's NDERF, N-D-E-R-F, um, N-D-E-R-F.com. Um, and he said that in the beginning, they may have asked leading questions in the very beginning, but soon they stopped and they don't do that, or at least for his study, they don't do that anymore. Uh, and they wait for the person to, um, you know, to, to come forth and say, boy, I had this crazy thing happen to me. But, you know, I, Susie says that she doesn't think it's a leading question. Um, she thinks that it was a prompt, mm -hmm. you know. It was In this a, case, I think it could, yeah, absolutely. 
Well, it was refreshing to to read that. I was a bit surprised. And I, again, wonder uh, as a practicing pediatrician dealing with children, whether she indeed has run into children that have may have had near-death experiences. Has she talked about that? She has. She has. Of course, she can't share patient information with me. Um, that patient information is protected. But just broadly speaking, mm-hmm. uh, she told me that, yes, uh, children have come back and uh, have lots of difficulty trying to articulate what happened to them. And um, most of the time, it's reflected in their artwork. They draw angels. They draw a tunnel. Um, you know, they draw what they can't articulate. Mm-hmm. Um And uh, she told me that she wasn't, when the doctor posed that question to her, she felt stunned. She didn't know if she should answer or not, if she'd be labeled as crazy. She, all these thoughts raced through her mind. Uh, But fortunately she was, and she is honest to a fault, uh, said, you know, yes, I did. And uh, that's when they had this, this talk about what happened to her. And uh, I thought it was real kind that this, this doctor reassured her, you know, um, and I guess gave her a heads up. Susie, things are going to change for you. You know, your mm-hmm. life is going to change. And he gave her a business card with his personal number written on the front of it and said, if you need to talk or you have problems processing all of this, you know, give me a call. I know people I can put you in touch with that that can help you. Uh, this is extraordinary. This is extraordinary. Did she remain in touch with this this man? I mean, it makes you wonder whether he himself may have had a near death experience. Yeah, I wonder that too. Yeah, she's called him a, a couple of times, um, but not a lot, not often. Right. I mean, she knows he's busy, but uh, right. Well, that that in and of itself is a bit of a uh, anomaly, particularly in a, a profession that is so um, loath to, uh, be, you know, grounded in materialism and loath to give any credence to uh, something that science can't prove as yet. We're going to wind down soon, but you know, here's where the cliffhanger is going to be, guys. Uh, I, I think you mentioned very briefly the other woman, and you never really got into who that other woman was. What the deal is, is that within the story of Susie Kwan and her near death experience, uh, another woman, true story, who happens to be a physician as well as an NDEer, as we say, uh, sort of euphemistically, and hers was precipitated by a horrific car crash. Now I'll say this, and then we're going to take it over to the after show because we're running out of time. And this is going to be a real good one, guys. This is something that I didn't know how to term. I'm going to, I'm going to key this up. I'm going to key this, this up for, for y'all and come over and listen. This particular woman was in a car crash. She was with two other people. Those two other people, unfortunately did not make it. They both died. She, along with the two other people, Terry, had an out, a shared out-of-body experience in which they were both hovering, all three of them were hovering over the accident scene, witnessing what was going on with their mangled bodies below. Okay. 
this was impetus, I believe, for you to study a little bit on this phenomenon. This is a phenomenon that is said to be not as uh, uncommon as we think. In fact, there is a term that's called shared death experiences, shared death experiences, also connected to Raymond Moody. We're going to go next door. First of all, did I tell that right? I want to make sure I got it, got it right, Terry. I, I think you nailed that. Okay, great. I, I should mention that I spoke with her last okay. evening for okay. about an hour. This other woman. Okay. So I have okay. detailed, cool information regarding okay. her experience. Fantastic. Yeah, I want to take that to the after show so we can really just kind of devote a little bit of time to this phenomenon of shared. Now it's been called a shared out of body experience, a shared near death experience, but broadly a shared death experience. I'm going to leave this question with you journeyers. Have you ever been with a loved one as they crossed over and felt yourself to have gone at least part of the way with them? Question mark. Let's leave it there. We're going to discuss this and some of the information that I found when I did a little bit of research on this right now on the after show. Terry Lovelace, thank you. Let's do this thing. I want to go over there right now. Doors open, as I always say. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, quickly. When do you think this book is coming out? When is Free Fall coming out, you think? March, April, late March, early April. Uh, it'll be on Amazon uh, initially and uh, Kindle and uh, paperback. Beautiful. Uh, I'm doing hardcover too this time. Good. I People still like hardcover. I like tangible things. So that's good. Yeah. You're an amazing writer. I've enjoyed uh, both of your books, both of the Devil's Den books. If you haven't uh, had a chance to take a look at uh, uh, the Devil's Den books, The Reckoning being the second one, please, uh, we'll make sure we'll have links to, to that. This is about Terry's incredible adventure, his Odyssey, Odyssey adventure with the ET contact phenomenon. But now we're talking NDE. So with that, let me say thank you, Terry Lovelace. Do not hang up. Let's go next door and talk about shared death experiences. Fascinating stuff. This could turn the whole idea of the afterlife on its head. Let's talk about it right now. <laughs> we'll talk to you later. See you next door. Thanks, everyone.